Welcome to Change the Narrative. I'm your host, J.D. Fuller. I'm Susie Younger. An African-American licensed psychotherapist. I'm also a licensed therapist. We talk about the isms. We talk about the phobias. Anything that marginalizes and oppresses. As a white woman, I ask the questions white people are too afraid to ask. Everything we are not and everything we are is because of fear. Through a mental health lens, Susie and I will have difficult conversations with celebrity guests, political activists, and everyone in between. Our mind will tell us whatever we want to believe, but the truth lives in the body, and that's where change occurs. Are you ready to change the narrative? We are so excited to have our guest today. Everyone meet Jolly Good Ginger. Born in the mountains of North Carolina, Jolly was raised not just around racists, but by them. And in his words, that's how they try to multiply them. At age 15, he became an advocate, taking his learnings from his upbringing into unlearning, relearning, and being an advocate for social justice, civil justice, and racism. He's become an internet sensation who speaks his truth. He has a lot to say. One of the things he says, quote, people are dying every day. If you're not part of the solution, get out of my way. Good day. Welcome, Jolly. Thank you very much. I like that introduction. <laughs> She's actually the best at introductions. I don't even try to mess that with that. That was great. That was awesome. <laughs> so but they're no, your words. You. <laughs> yeah, true. They, they are. I can take accountability for them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so uh, we're just going to take you back a little bit and try to figure out sure. what were the messages given to you as a child while the Confederate flag was posted in your front yard when you were living with dad for 10 years? What were the messages? Sure. So that's a good question. And this is something I talk a lot about. And I'm actually, I have a current plan to start doing some longer seminar type things where we talk more in detail about that, because there is this concept that hate is taught as hate. It's not how it works. You know, if you tell somebody, hey, hey, let me teach you how to be a racist. Come here. Nobody's going to do that. Nobody. Oh, teach me. No, Uh, you learn hate without knowing you're learning hate. And it's by the way, you just said the messages that are given to you. Let's talk about the Confederate flag, as a matter of fact. On the flag that was in my front yard at the bottom, it said, the South will rise again. Uh, and I and I grew up seeing that. And uh, my neighbors had a flag that said that, and my uncle, and my this, and my that, and my this. Everybody had a flag that said, South will rise again. Well, as a young kid, I don't know what that means. I just take it to be a fact that I see every day. Right. And then one day, I, I was probably nine or 10, I asked my dad, I said, hey, dad, what does that mean? I'm just curious. And my dad told me this. He goes, son, listen, it's not going to be long before it's illegal to be white in this country. It's going to be illegal to be a Christian in this country. It's going to be illegal to be a heterosexual white male in this country. This is what's told to me. And I heard it many, many times throughout my life, but I was 10 years old. And now a lot of us know that message, right? It resonates with the current Trump crowd, the current QA non-crowd and the current white, you know, conspiracy theory crowd. But what people need to realize is this is not new messaging. Trump didn't come come along and have some novel idea. What he did was he gave a face and a name to a movement that has been around forever. My dad was a part of it. I was taught to be a part of it. And that was the messaging that was given to me was that we are the hardworking, proud Americans who make this country go round. And everybody else is lazy. And everybody else, you know, um, wants what we have, but doesn't want to work with for what we got, don't have the same values as us. 
Uh, and that was kind of in all the messages I got, and I can go on and on and on story after story after story of how this was casually taught to you. Mm-hmm. And so it really, you believe it, right? Because it's casually taught to you. Yeah. It's kind of given to you in the water. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. The N word was thrown around my house, mm-hmm. you know, every day, all the time. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't out of anger. This is what I need to get people to understand. The N word was not, I'm mad at a black person. I call them an N word. No, no, no. That was the descriptor. Yeah, like that's who we are. That that was, and it wasn't, and again, it wasn't said out of anger. Um, so I didn't take it to mean a mean thing. I'll give you a good example. People, this this story really resonates with people when I tell it. So every year there would be a, a time where we're gonna have a three-day weekend for the Reverend Dr. King's birthday. Mm-hmm. Every year when that happened, everybody was pissed off. People don't realize that. Everybody on the mountains pissed off. So we come home from school on Friday. And I got to remind, you know, my dad's wife, I don't ever call her stepmom, but my dad's wife that, hey, we don't go to school Monday. Why? Why? What's Monday? Doctor, it's Martin Luther King's birthday. So the name, the day that everybody on the mountain called it, then nobody called it Martin Luther King Day or Martin Luther King birthday. They called it the N-word day. That was, uh, you know, very common, actually. Um, so, so like, oh, N-word day. And uh, then they'll go on rants. They'll go on rants about how. I was told as a child, and I believed this for many, many, for a long time until I was able to educate myself. I was told that that used to be President's Day and that we had President's Day off, but the N-words took that away from us and they want their GD leader to be praised. So now my kids are off for N-word day. The N-words have their leader. What about our leaders? And so what you got to realize is nobody sat me down and said, hey, listen, but what I absorbed by way of simply hearing this was, Oh, so Martin Luther King is black people's leader, and we have our own leader, which is the president's. And so this this division happens in your head without being told. There's there's black America and white America. That was that was laid out as plain as day without ever those words being said. This is what casual racism does. And so that, that, that's a very important to this day. You can go to the same mountain I grew up on. I can go there right now, and they'll call Martin Luther King Day the N-word day. That's just that it hasn't changed. You know, what I like, uh, actually love about what you just did is you deconstructed something in a way that is user-friendly to people who continue to say, but that's not me, that's not me. And I appreciate that because that's the message that's missed. If I don't do that, then I don't own racism. And that's a problem, you know? So so in your, in your own words, tell us how you went from a self-proclaimed racist household in North Carolina to becoming jolly good ginger. So- on that note, I'll answer your question, but on the note you just said, I want to really highlight something that that's right. This is what I tell everybody, right? So everybody, the more, the more that America, especially with social media, the more people that are coming out and saying, you know what? America is racist. I see a lot of white folk and, and let me just caveat because I have to, people think I'm here to attack white people. Look, I'm white and I'm mayonnaise <laughs> white. Okay. So I'm not here to attack mayonnaise white people. White. But the facts are the facts. And so I hear white people and I hear a lot of people say, you know, I, I, I was raised around races. I know what you mean. And you will find lots of people who are ready and willing to say I was raised around races. The problem is this. There's this exception fallacy that you're living under in that you were raised around races, but somehow you guys weren't. No, 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 no. You were raised by them, too. You weren't the you weren't the Lone Ranger white family in the racist neighborhood and everybody was a racist. But your mom and dad was just good people. Okay. And, and I don't doubt that they were good people, but. 
it comes, the, the transition, if you want to be part of the solution, the transition comes when you realize you wasn't raised around racist, you was raised by them. And that is the hardest transition. What I tell everybody, I, I see these people jump on, I see it all the time on social media. These people jump online and they say, you know, they, I can't imagine what it's like to be a black person in America. They must, okay, cool. And I'm glad that you're thinking that way. But listen, your empathy is not solving anything. Save your empathy and fix your cousins. I need you to start checking your mommy and daddy at, at Thanksgiving dinner. Stop giving Uncle Fred a free pass because, ah, that's just how he is. Oh, he don't mean nothing by it. No, no, no. Uncle Fred, it means everything he's saying. We got to stop letting these little things pass. And that right there is the message white America is quite frankly not ready for. Um, that's what across the board we're not doing. To answer your question, where was my transition? Well, that's really the transition. Um, so to, long story short, I don't mean to ramble no, on, no, but long go, story go. short. Go, go. And by the way, I want a t-shirt. <laughs> you got it. My mom and dad divorced when I was three. Okay. Uh, and my mom, and that's a whole story. My mom will tell you her story. My mom was, she was racist and my dad was racist. And there, there's a, there's a story I'll tell you here in a minute, uh, but I won't now because, but they divorced when I was three and my mom remarried to a black man. So for my dad, that was just, you know, oh my God. Right. So now you got all his friends and even his own parents, my grandparents saying, you know, well, she left you for an N word. Like that was the going theme was, you were left for an N-word, which was, by the way, the trope, right? Black men are out here trying to steal that's white women. That was That's what we've been told. Right. That's what we've been told since the birth of the nation was played in the White House. Black men are trying to steal white women. So now my dad's white woman has been stolen by a black man. Oh, my God. So now everything that was already racially motivated in in, in my father's life was now verified. And so... My dad got custody of me, which was kind of unheard of, yeah. the, you know, when mother's not getting, but my mom remarried a black guy and it's the eighties in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. Judge is not giving you custody of me. Sorry, you lost. So my dad got custody of me. Uh, and I didn't see my mom again until I was 10. Um, my mom went to court and got visitation rights of me and I hated my mom. Right. So I have been told quite simply that my mom was ungodly because I grew up in church, Pentecostal, fire breathing, hell and brimstone church and interracial relationships were against God's will, like God himself didn't approve of that. And here's the story of Moses and his Gentile woman to prove it, right? And so um, that's what I was told. And then I was told that for that reason, all of my mother's children were bastards because her, uh, God didn't approve of her marriage. And so I didn't want anything to do with my mom. Uh, plus, I'm a young kid. I'm 10. I've, in my mind, you've abandoned me. So that you play that, you play that along with everything I've been told about you. I hate you. So I made it my mission. You know, when she came to pick me up, it would be the only time she ever picked me up because I would make her hate me. And she wouldn't want to see me no more. And so day one, I meet her on our first visitation. I'm calling her an inward lover. I'm calling her kids in words. Like that's what I'm doing. Not in front of them. They weren't there yeah, at the yeah. time, but I was saying that to her. And I told her that, you know, basically told her, you know, God don't even approve of your marriage. You're going to hell. All your children are going to hell. Your husband went to hell. And so when she dropped me back off, it was like a two hour visitation or something. I thought she'll never pick me up again. I know that's for a fact. And then two weeks, it's time for visitation again. It's Saturday. I'm like, watch that. She won't be here. She pulled up. I was like, God, I'm out. She pulled up. And then this time, <laughs> she took me to her house to meet my, my siblings and everybody. At the time, uh, she only hit three other children from her second marriage. You know, I remember vividly this whole day. I remember, I can remember getting in the car. I can remember how it smelled. I remember arriving in the house. It was a very big, it was a, it was a day in my mind that I remember. It was hard because 
when my siblings came out, I got to my mom's house and I don't want nothing to do with any of them. And they came out and they're like, oh, Russell, I'm so glad to see you. And I thought, why? You don't know me. Um, but my mom had really told them a bunch of good stuff about me. They were younger than me. I was obviously older than they were. I don't know. I just couldn't be mean to them. I wanted everything in my body to be mean to them. And I, I couldn't. Mm. So I played with them. I got to know them. And then my mom would come get me every two weeks and I would get to know everybody. And I just got to realize this is not what I was told black, uh, black neighborhoods were like. This is not what I was. My mom lived in an all black neighborhood. My, my, my mom was the white person in that neighborhood. And so as I would go over and hang out with my siblings, we're playing basketball and hanging out and things, doing things that kids do. And it's all black kids. And everything that was supposed to be happening to me wasn't happening. I wasn't getting beat up. I wasn't getting jumped. I wasn't getting mugged. I wasn't, nobody was doing drugs and all these things that, you know, and it just, at first, it didn't stand out to me that way at first, but where I, I think where I started really questioning it was I would come home, but I would be, dad would be, how was mom's house? Oh, great. And he never called her mom. He called her by her mm -hmm. name. But I'll be all oh, great. I had a great time. You did, you know. And it just started pissing me off. I'm like, man, why? Why can't you just accept I'm having a good time? Like, what? The, you know, what? Stop. The more that he would question what I was doing, the more I started questioning what he taught me. And then as I started juxtaposing what I was told with what I was seeing, I had a, I came to a critical crossroads for a 13 year old, and that was, do I? cognitively disassociate myself from reality to accept what I was taught or do I simply accept what's right in front of my face and I chose the latter I stepped what was in front of my face I decided my dad had taught me a bunch of bullshit <laughs> and and for me and, and nobody knew that I was going through that in my, mentally I didn't that wasn't something you're not gonna I'm not gonna talk about openly you know what right you know and I'm not gonna do that and so for a couple of years, I spent a couple of years, I got really close to my siblings and then, you know, I got close to my mom and started arguing with my dad a lot more and didn't make my, my beliefs or my feelings known until I was 15. I remember when I was 15, I still remember this day very well. I told my dad, I said, you know what, dad, I don't want you to say the N word in front of me no more. Now there's this thing in the mountains and there's this, this Southern traditional value, this belief. There's, there's a couple things you don't do. Like you don't do it. And number one is you don't tell another man what to do in his own house. Like that doesn't happen. That's like a no-no. And so here I am, his own son, standing in his house telling him what he's not going to do. This was not good. So he looked at me and said, what would you say? And I told him again. I said, you know, I don't want you to say the N-word in front of me no more. Say whatever you want to say. Don't say it in front of me. And he said, well, here's what the, you're not going to do is sit in my house and tell me what I'm not going to say. And I don't care how many of those N-words you're in love with. And so he said it on purpose, you know. And so long story short, we actually got into a physical altercation, which I've been beat a lot. So it wasn't like a big deal. But this was the first time we fought fault. And and I now I'll be clear. I, I lost that fight. He beat me up. It was it was clearly his advantage. My dad was a big dude, but he won that fight. But morally, I won that fight. And mentally, I won that fight. That was the turning point for me. You know, for me to say no to my dad. For me to say no to my cousins, to my to everybody. It became clear. Everybody started learning. Oh, you know, Russell. Everything's about race. Or Russell. No, no, no. Not everything's about everything is about race. You just don't accept right. it. And so that was the turning point. So when I called my family out and I was, you know, that guy, um, to me, it was relieving. I didn't have to struggle no more. It was like, I can learn. I can teach myself. I can be myself. They've already shunned me. So fuck them. You know, I can do what I want to do. And that's what it's going to take for everybody until you can look your parents in the eyes and realize, no, and you're not going to do it in front of me anymore. And I'm not going to allow it no more, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. You're not there yet. I, I, everybody's on their way. And I like that, but we're not there yet until you can do that. You know, again, just the nuance of what you're saying here is the uh, idea that 
you know, and I've said this to Susie, you know, if you lost them, they're not your friends. If you lost them because you're standing in your truth and injustice, they're not your friends. And that's what you're saying. It's like something has to matter more than, than just saying you have family, even if you know deep down inside, they're against everything you believe in. So I, I, I love yeah. that. That's powerful. So talk to us about the transition, because then you went into the military, right? Mm, yeah, I did. I joined, I joined the military. And so what was mm. the greatest lesson you learned in the military? Mm. So, I mean, I guess the greatest lesson I learned in the military was for as a whole, just as a human being, was just like how, I guess, my what my true left and right limits were as a person, right? So in the military, right off gate, you do a bunch of stuff that you're not ordinarily going to do. And and you're not sure if you can do it and you got to face the fear head on because well, you have no choice, right? You're standing in front of the, on this wall, this 50 foot wall, and they want you to repel backwards. I've never repelled in my life, oh, my and, you know, you know, this kind of stuff. And then obstacle courses and, and, and I don't know, I, I, the military for me was really fun in terms of it taught me that if you just go do it, like, just do it, be done with it. Like you can complain and cry, just go do it. And it really taught me to uh, stand up against fear and adversity, which comes along, which does a lot for what I do now, right? Because like you said, I, I, I do have a pretty big social media presence. If you put my Instagram and TikTok and everything together, I'm right around a million followers, subscribers, whatever you want to call it. And so I get plenty of from both sides. And I think that that whole, I'm not really scared of that adversity makes it easier for me to deal with that. Yeah, that makes sense. But in terms of social issues, I was well into the military before I realized I was homophobic, right? So and when you talk about that transition, Transition, we, we have to always be learning, you know, and I, I spoke out against racial issues as early as 15, and I did more listening than I did speaking at that age, right, and we got two years of one mouth, and then you use it proportionally, and so, you know, I, I would learn, I would listen to the elders in the community, and I, I, I was fascinated by, by you know, Malcolm X, and, and listen to his speeches and read his book. I was fascinated by the speeches of Dr. King. You'll find out he wrote a lot more than I have a dream. And so, you know, I was fascinated by that because it was this other perspective that nobody wanted to listen to, especially where I was from. You don't listen to that. That's just, you're just playing victim and you're just pulling the race card. But when I listen to it objectively, understanding, no, this is real, man. Wow. It opens your head up, right? So there's a lot of learning to be done there. But I had never considered homophobia. I never considered that, or Islamophobia, or transphobia. I never considered that those were things. Because where I was from, it wasn't a conversation. It wasn't something I dealt with. I didn't meet. I didn't. I say. I, I, I jokingly say I didn't meet gay people. I didn't. They just didn't tell me they were gay because where I'm from, that gets you yeah, in trouble, right? So, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And I remember very specifically in my early twenties the conversation of gay marriage was a national conversation. And in the military, it was don't ask, don't tell. And that was kind of the, the law of the land. And you just don't ask, don't tell. And me personally, I, I knew people in my unit that were gay because in the barracks and, and, and when the leadership wasn't around, everybody knew they were gay. And we just didn't tell because that was the policy. Don't ask, don't tell. And so I always had this philosophy that I grew up like, you know, I don't mind if you're gay, just don't yeah. be gay around me. Right. So I didn't think I was homophobic because I, I just, I tolerated you being there, not realizing the <laughs> built-in superiority of that mindset, right? When gay marriage become a topic, then it really was, what really, I don't know, for whatever reason, that's when the transition happened for me was I, I, I spoke out against gay marriage, right? Because, well, I was a Christian and I was raised in church that, you know, that's not, that's, that's what God doesn't right. approve of. And so 
And I would always, I was this guy, I always wanted to reconcile things. Like, well, you know what? Why do you got to get married? Just have a civil yeah. union, you know, all, all these things. So that, and it was this gay guy in my unit. It's a gay black guy in my unit. And he basically said to me, he goes, why do you care, man? And we were in the day room one day, just kind of talking about the subject. And I said, why do I care? I care because my, it's, 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 the Bible says, he goes, well, what if I don't believe in the Bible? Then you're going to hell, you know? And he was like, listen, then I'll go to hell. But while I'm here on earth, why do you care if I marry another man who consents to it? He's an adult, man. He consents to it. I'm an adult. I consent to it. And I love him. And we're happy. And we're not bothering nobody. Why do you care? And it was pissing me off because I didn't have a good answer for it. It was pissing me off. And I didn't admit it to his face. I didn't even admit it when I was in that unit. But what he don't know is him not coddling my feelings and him not giving a shit about, you know, what I believed and just put it in my face and asking for a logical direct answer is what made me. And I, to this day, I will tell you this it's what made me question myself. Why do I care? And I, and I, when I couldn't arrive, I, I talked to my aunt, I'm, I, I called my family. Like, why do I care? Right? Like, why do we care? And I asked them and I was asking them, why do we care? Why do we care? And it was the same BS answer over and over. Well, you know, God said, and that what he kept saying in my head, what if I don't believe in God? It kept running through my head. And, and I have to believe, I have to accept separation of church and state. I have to accept uh, the concept of, uh, you know, everybody has their own belief, freedom of religion, freedom of America. I'm a soldier. I have to believe. And I decided, okay, I support gay marriage. And when I did that, my family just had this collective clutching of the pearls. And oh my God, really, that's when I really pissed me. People don't realize, like me speaking out against racism is not really what pissed my family off as much as when I spoke out and supported gay marriage. Wow, that's um, interesting. It really is. People miss that point. See, because racists don't think they're racist. So me speaking out against racism, wow, they disassociate from powerful. that. Yeah, they disassociate from that. They know that they don't believe in gay marriage. We're not, we're, we're not splitting hairs about that. So when I say I support gay marriage, it's, you know, I had my cousin who hadn't spoke to me in years called me, Russell, you understand what you're doing is you're going to send yourself to hell, you know? I had my other cousin, you know, really spent like a, an hour trying to con convince, get me to tell him I was gay because I had to be gay to support it. There's no mm -hmm. other possible explanation than me being gay. And again, the same thing like when I was 15, the more they fought me on it, the harder my stance got and the more I educated myself on it. And I actually joined and it was a big no-no to do this in the army, but I did it. At the time I was stationed in California and they were having a march in San Francisco supporting gay marriage. And I was so pissed at my family. I said, you know what? I'm going to the fucking march and I'm marching for it. Matter of fact. And I did. And I marched my ass to San Francisco and I, and I marched. It was a little bit of a culture shock for me. You know, you know how those marches are. And I didn't. I didn't know how those marches were. As a, as a 20 something year old from the mountains of North Carolina, I've never even met a gay person. Well, a person that I knew right. was gay. And now I'm in San Francisco at essentially a pride march supporting gay marriage. That was welcome to, you know, pride for me. That was a big transition for me. And just something as small as supporting gay marriage really made me realize I was homophobic, you know, and, and not, not right then. There was still some time, but it, it was the turning point for me, realizing that I was homophobic. That sounds like the biggest message you got from the military. <laughs> I think it really yeah, was, to be honest. Yeah. Because honestly, I don't, I, don't, I don't think, had I been in that situation, I, may, I, I would have questioned yeah. it, you know? Because how could I teach myself about my own racism and bigotry and not see the other? Because simple, you don't see what you don't know. You don't, crazy people don't know they're crazy. <laughs> You know, 
alcoholics don't know they're alcoholics and, and, and addicts don't know they're addicts. And so, you know, that's what people don't understand. I, I'm okay with labeling things. You're a racist. You're a colonizer. You're a bigot. But people got to realize if you don't have a message beyond that, you're not getting through those people because they don't associate with yeah. that. You know, it's an important thing. And so for me, I didn't associate with it. So I never, I, I, I never realized. Again, another great nuance. So why does it upset you so much? I mean, I know, but I want to hear you say it. Why does it upset you so much when your military brothers and sisters espouse hatred and white supremacy? Um, no, what, what, what pisses me off more than anything is the stereotype that that is the norm. It's mm. not. Okay. Uh, that's why I, I do a, I do what I do on I'm, I joined Common Defense last year. They, well, actually, they they invited me to join, uh, which I was humbled by. They're they're the organization, the left leaning veteran organization, who actually called Donald Trump out on his BS oh, for okay. the six million dollar donation. Yeah, and so they're a big organization. They helped get AOC elected. They are a group of veterans that are left leaning, and that's their message. Their message is like, look, not all veterans are are right leaning, you know you know, military, radical Republicans. It's not a thing. And so that's what pisses me off more than anything is that there's this idea. See, I'm not the guy. You know, you go to my car, there's not a bumper sticker. You're not going to know that I was in Iraq and Afghanistan. I'm not that guy. I didn't make it my personality. A lot of people meet me and don't even know I served until that conversation comes up because I don't make it my personality. I can also say that Iraq and Afghanistan were wars we never should have been in. I can say that quite emphatically and be okay with it knowing that i served in those wars and that's what a lot of people too many people try to justify things they did no i i, I did it not knowing i didn't make the decision to do it and so what pisses me off the most is when people use the uniform or use their service to promote ideas of hatred because what it does is reinforces a stereotype that that is the military viewpoint, when in fact it's not. General Mark Milley did an amazing job. I'm sure we've all seen the video yeah. just two days yeah, ago. Did an amazing job putting Matt Gates in his place. Yeah. Matt Gates' place is in prison. Yeah, exactly. He's not there yet. <laughs> and that, honestly, that's the military. It is. The overwhelming majority of the military are free thinkers. I've seen more people lose their racism, lose their homophobia, and lose things in the military. See, there is racism in the military. And this is a talking point that we have, but I don't think enough conversation happens about the people that change in the military. I, I, I went to basic training, and a guy was in my, it blew my mind. I couldn't even, I, it made no sense to me, but it was a real thing. And coming to basic training, so all four of our drill sergeants, just so happened, were black. And he had never seen a black person before in person in his life. I didn't even know that was a it's thing. A thing. Like, it's a real thing. Yeah. yeah I, 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 he said that. And I was like, you're fucking lying. He said, no, man, I'm dead serious. I've never, I've seen him on TV. I said, are you serious? You're, you're yanking my chain. But he was so serious. He himself had a lot of negative stereotypes about black people, obviously, because the only black people he's seen on, was on TV, and the only black people that show on TV are the ones with a negative role in a movie, or you're being locked up on nightly news, you know, he's never seen anything besides that, so, um, but I, you see these people come in, and they're forced to be with people they've never been around before, they're forced to be around lifestyles they've never been around before, there's this, there's this clash of beliefs from the guy from the, the mountains to the guy from the Pacific Northwest, and this clash of beliefs, and it made... Literally, 
a lot of the transition for me of becoming uh, understanding my own bigotry happened through those conversations. To me, that really represents what the military is. Overwhelmingly, I, I know a lot of veterans. I spent 13 years doing it. And the vast majority of veterans that I know think the way I think. Yeah. They're not, they're not right-wing conspiracy nuts and this, that, and the third. Do they exist? Sure, but that's not the majority. You know, and what's also so insulting about it is the fact that the military goes into marginalized communities to recruit the most. Facts. And so the fact that there aren't enough veterans saying what you say is, is problematic. So I appreciate that you know, you know many who do think like you, you think and who are the vast majority. That's really helpful to hear because that's not something that we hear. Um, very frequently exactly and, and it's not something you hear it's not, and, and it, it, that's what drives me the most crazy uh, that's why i like groups like common defense and that are having these conversations that are you know because truth be told people change in the military and they change a lot and yes the military itself is changing because the military is its leadership in the 80s and 90s and 2000s the leadership was mostly white men and mostly conservative republican men because that was the that was a representation of the demographics of America. Yeah. Well, you know, through equality programs, through equal opportunities, through EO programs in the military, getting more black leadership, more female leadership, more leadership from marginalized communities. Don't ask, don't tell was thrown out as it should have been. And so now we're getting a more diverse leadership. You're going to get a more diverse culture rather than everybody has to be quiet because we don't really agree with our platoon sergeant, but I can't say shit about it, you know? And so there's that transition happening as well. Okay. Another thing is that I say this all the time, and I want to know your thoughts on it. White people listen to white people, but they learn from people who are marginalized in society. So I want to know how you make sense out of that. So I hear that a lot too. I hear a lot of people say, a lot of people say to me, hey, you know, Jolly, I really appreciate what you're doing because white people listen to white people. And, and it's not, truth be told, as a white person who understands racism better than they understand themselves. It's not so much that they listen to white people. It's not even really true. White people, listen, people that don't, people that have negative feelings towards black people, their feelings towards people like me are, are worse. Okay? Oh, yeah, I believe that. You know, there, there, there's black people, and then there's the white scum that support them, right? So actually, my, wow. th those people I'm directing my message about uh, are less likely, less inclined to listen to yeah. me than they are a black person, but Here's why my message gets through to them better. Here's why. Number one, their basic line of defense that they have is, is useless. You're pulling the race card. Well, you can't say that to me, right? Well, you don't have, you, 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 all these stereotypes don't have it because I'm not black, right? So when a black person says it, they just pull out their arsenal of shit they've been saying for 20 years and bah, 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 bah. now I'm saying it and they're, they're defenseless. Oh, shit. And then to add the cherry on top, me specifically saying it because of my background and, and the time I've taken to study it and the time I've put into the, because I've been doing this again for 22 years. I've been saying these things and talking about these topics. I also, I say it in their language. I call them out on their bullshit. I call them out on what they're saying behind closed doors. When they say to me, well, what about this? I ignore that question and I go straight to why they're saying it. I ignore your talking point and go straight to where it came from. I, and then what I do is I say, well, what about in our communities where this and this and this? What about in our neighborhood where this and this? Because I know my dad, I know my, I know, you know yeah. what I mean? And so it, the ability to call them out on their bullshit is powerful. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're listening to white people as much as 
it's a perspective they can't deny. You're forced. You, I'm, I'm going to leave you with two options. Either you converse with me where I'm at, or you got to run back to your safety net of ignorance. Whereas with a black person, it's going to be, you're pulling the race card. You always say that. You know, you got a single, single mother, you know, and, and it's the same crap they always say. And so it just leaves them defenseless, really, when, when one of their own kinds. But I feel it. like that is listening to you more because you've got the defenses knocked down and you look like them. And it's harder to pull out their their old ammunition and, and you know, use it on you because it doesn't work the same way. So, I, you know, I think it. I, I, I follow what you're you know saying. What I, mean? and I don't disagree. It's just it, what, what, what's really tough about the whole conversation is no matter who's delivering the message. The safety net of the majority of white people disagreeing with me makes makes my message harder, makes your message, makes everybody's message harder to infiltrate the community. And that's why I direct my message at those people within the community that I know are really ready to get out of mm. that and be vocal. I can show you my Instagram direct message box. Oh, my God, I bet it's amazing. It stays full. Littered throughout there is tons of white people mm -hmm. who say to me, from your message, from your videos, from your platform, I have found the courage to call my mom and dad out. I found the courage to speak out against my coworker. I've been wanting to be anti-racist. They, they literally say this. I've been wanting to be anti-racist for a while and didn't know how. And you showed me. And so that, if you want to sink a boat, you got to put holes in the bottom. Yeah. And so plugging those people out, I don't care if the Trumpers want to believe me i call them trumpers but really it's just my family i don't care if <laughs> i don't care if they want to listen to me i don't care if the radicals want to listen to me i don't care we'll get to you but i have to take away this safety net i want white people to be scared to be racist i want that i i i, I call myself the ceo of no no safe spaces for <laughs> uh, for racists and, and 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 i'm gonna tell you a story just two months ago three maybe three at this point I took my wife's car down the Jiffy Lube for an oil change. And I dropped the car off and I went in the waiting room and there was one other guy in there. It was a white guy. And on the news, something came on about a Black Lives Matter protest or something. And he, uh -oh. he goes, ah, fucking inwards, right? Why Whitney? I'm the only guy, yeah. other guy in there. And I clearly agree with right. you, right? Until I didn't and things got uncomfortable for him. So that is what we have to do. I want, see, there's a lot of white people that would have sat there and been like, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have said nothing. They wouldn't have agreed. Silence is compliance. You got to understand that. And so I'm the guy, and my wife will tell you, and it drives my wife crazy. It doesn't drive her crazy because my wife agrees with what I do. But like the other day, we were in uh, IHOP or something, and I had a shirt on. It said whatever it said. I, you know, I always wear shirts to say something. And um, an older white couple was looking at they kept looking at it. And my wife would say, God, they're looking at your shirt. They're going to say something. And the reason she was worried about it is because what I was going right. to say back. Right. I don't, I, I, I make whole scenes. <laughs> We're having a whole time today. <laughs> and so that's what I am. And that's what I'm about. I don't care where we are. And I don't care how it goes down. As soon as I see it, I say something, see something, say something. And that's what I want all the other white people to do because then when these races stop finding these safe places to have these racist conversations, now they're alone in their bigotry. Now they're either forced to listen to what we're saying and find some compromise with us or be depressed and miserable. Because as it stands right now, they can run back to their family or, this, or their church group or their, their workplace and have these conversations about how all this is stupid. And even if 10 people sitting around don't, don't believe them, nobody's checking them. 
That's a safe space for a racist. I'm the CEO of No Safe Spaces for Racists. So I think that one of the things that I, I wonder about when I watch your messages, uh, watch your videos and everything you do on social media is why you say racism instead of white supremacy when that's clearly what we're looking at in this country, right? It's been elevated that, you know, we, we are no longer just talking about the occasional racist perspective. You know, we have to expand our view to racist systems that are, are run now, currently run the power is in the hands of white supremacists. And I just wonder about, is it a strategy to not elevate the message? Uh, because the way it stands, I work with a lot of training in, in this capacity, and I see a lot of white people who say, well, they're racist, but I'm not, as opposed to we benefit from a racist system. We now benefit more from a system that is run by white supremacy. So I'm just wondering if that's a strategy to kind of ease them in, or is there another mechanism at work? No, it's, it's not a strategy to ease them in. I will, I will say why I specifically choose the word racist, and this is for this reason. You're, you're correct in everything you just said, by the way. I'm not disagreeing with that because it is, it is a system of white supremacy and it is really an elevation. But, but that word to the majority of white America means nothing. Mm. Using that word, you're, you're saying nothing to them. White people across the board care more about being called a racist than that. they do actual racism. I agree with that. Okay. Yes. Yes. And so if I call you a racist, man, I have. I agree Those that. are fighting words. We are we are ready to roll. If I say you're a white supremacist, they'll laugh at yeah. you. A white supremacist in a racist mind is a guy in a yeah, sheet in a hood riding on a horse, right. rolling with a burning cross. That's what that is. That's the Ku Klux Klan. Now they're really going to disassociate from that. Now, no, whatever. Or if I say it's a, listen, one thing you're not going to convince. It's it's ironic, right? So the people that refuse to accept systemic racism believe that systemically they're being targeted for being white. It's it's this it, it's the most amazing mental gymnastics it's you've ever seen right and, and but i i like the word racism personally i like the word racist personally because i know how deep that yeah. cuts and how and how hard that hits and the weight it carries and i'm a firm believer of i don't want to find a way to make this comfortable so that's an excellent perspective i get it i guess my concern is that what i hear a lot is i'm anti-racist so I don't own racism. And I think that that sentiment is problematic because, you know, Agreed. what I like to say is, you know, Agreed. men can't give away patriarchy and you can't give away racism. You can be anti-racist and the most anti-racist people understand that they own racism as a systemic issue in our country. So I guess that's where my mind goes, but I appreciate your perspective and how you're- Well, working. can I say something oh, on that real quick? Because yes. I love that you brought that up because honestly, that is truly what I want to do. And let me explain what I mean. And I, and I hate myself for not having done more in, in this way because that was my end game for a while now. Here's the reason, and it goes back to what I said earlier. The reason people say I'm anti-racist, I don't own racism is because, let me, let me be blatantly clear when I say this. I hate the word ally. It's not a word. Hate it's it. not a word. Let's get rid of it. Yeah, I've hated it since it came out. As soon as I heard people saying it, I was like, oh, God, here we go. I am the Nostradamus of white people, and I know exactly where this <laughs> was going as soon as I heard the yes. word. People wear that as the I am voting symbol, and they say, look, I'm an ally, so I'm not racist. Stop. Listen, white people just don't want to be called racist. That's why I, uh, I, yeah, I, I yeah. use the word. That's all they want. And so if I get the, if I get the title ally, well, I'm not fucking racist. I'm an ally. And that's bullshit. That's been the problem for the last 100 years of white people in, in being in this fight. And so what I want to, what, what I really want to teach people is this. White people 
subconsciously and through the way we're taught and through everything, they see racism as a light switch. Mm-hmm. You're racist or you're not racist. And that is the that is the spectrum through which white people view racism. The reason that you are having trouble understanding how an anti-racist can't own racism is because you understand racism is a spectrum, yeah. right? There are people burning crosses and riding on horses. Right. And then there's people that are just believing stereotypes, yeah. perpetuating stereotypes. And then there's people that are kind of in the middle, but they don't say yeah or no either way. So silence is compliance. And then there's people who will speak out until they feel uncomfortable about it. Then all of a sudden they're mad again. And then there's real people who understand what racism really is and how we feed it. But no matter where you are on the spectrum, you're on the spectrum, yeah. you're not off the spectrum. That is what needs to be taught through and through, which is a big thing that critical race theory will bring to the yes. table. But currently, as it stands, even people who call themselves allies who are in this fight, listen, listen, Great Britain's our ally. If I go to war tomorrow, they, if we go to war tomorrow, they don't have to join us. That's why I hate the word ally, right? An ally joins when it's comfortable for them. So anyway, when they benefit from it. So these people that call themselves anti-race, I told my wife, look, when, when we watch George Floyd get murdered on camera, okay, which, by the way, we can talk about this 22 and a half year sentence. But when we watch George Floyd get murdered on camera, the next day across this country, Facebook and Instagram was filled up with white people who have never spoken on this issue before saying, I am anti-racist. And I told my wife, I said, listen to me, because I'm the national of white people. I said, listen to me. I said, I want you to take note of everybody who's saying that. Because I promise you, as sure as I'm sitting in this seat, in two to three weeks, their tune will change. I promise you. And it's exactly what happened. As soon as the first target was burnt down, what did I hear? Well, I, I, you know, I support Black Lives, but but Target. Listen, if the only thing that is standing between you and actually fighting for Black Lives is Target being burnt down, you, you were you were never on board. You were never there to begin with. And so, to your point, how can you be anti-racist? And, and it's because they don't know what the hell anti-racist means right. because they they're still on a light switch. If I have a black friend, light switch off because yeah. racists hate all black people. So how could I be a racist and have a black friend? It's a light switch. We got to We got to educate an America that is not a light switch. Stop. It's a spectrum. And that's what white America doesn't get that. Uh, literally, even those who are educated, even those who want to be in this fight, even those who are vocal, I'm telling you, they don't understand there's a spectrum. Please be sure to like, subscribe, and follow wherever you get your podcasts. And also, leave us a review. Let us know what you think. Thank you for listening to Change the Narrative with J.D. Fuller. J.D. and I want to thank our fabulous producers at I Am Music Group. And for all of you out there who want to do your own podcast, go to immusicgroup.com and the team will hit you back.